Welcome to Literary Anything, our Marian Libraries podcast where we talk about anything literary and literary anything. I'm Jane. I'm Paula. Welcome. Welcome. It's October now. And we've read A Slow Fire Burning by Paula Hawkins. Jane and I were just <laughs> cracking up because we keep getting the title wrong and calling um, it other things like a fire slowly burning. Burn, a burning slow fire. <laughs> We've said the other title so many times, we're not sure what the real one is. But it is a slow fire burning. That's what we've read. Yes. And we're going to talk about it now. But first, Jane, are you going to tell us about Paula Hawkins? Yeah, I would like to do that. So Paula Hawkins, she was born and raised in Rhodesia, which of course now is Zimbabwe. She moved to London in the late 80s. And then she worked as a journalist for The Times, uh, reporting on business. She worked for a number of publications on a freelance basis. And she even wrote a financial advice book for women called The Money Goddess. Ah, Have you heard of that? No. No, me either. I don't read financial advice books. Same. (laughs) Not even The Barefoot Investor. (laughs) Around 2009, she began to write romantic comedy fiction under the pseudonym Amy Silver. I didn't know that either. Writing four novels, including Confessions of a Reluctant Recessionista. Recessionista. Like recession, but like barista, but recessionista, (laughs) right? (laughs) Um, But she didn't get any sort of commercial success with these books until she started to challenge herself to write a darker, more serious story, which is a little bit of a link to Theo. Oh, yes, in the book, yes. So everyone would have heard of The Girl on the Train, which came out in 2015. So that was her foray into the darker sort of suspenseful thriller genre. Yeah, and that was our introduction to her, right? Jane and I both read that book. We both read that when it came out. That was a complex thriller with themes of domestic violence and drug abuse. took her six months to write that book. And at the time, she was in a really difficult financial situation. So she had to borrow money from her father to be able to complete the book because she was writing full time. And then, of course, the book was a huge success and it was adapted to film Mm. in 2016. So fairly quickly after it came out, it was made into a movie. And Emily Blunt was the lead in that role. Did you see the movie? Yes, I really loved it. I loved the book and I loved the movie. Yeah, you should watch it. Really? Yeah, it's pretty faithful to the book and it does Mm. a good job. And Emily Blunt is brilliant. Okay, maybe I will. Yeah. And then her second thriller came out in 2017. That was Into the Water, not as well received as Girl on the Train. And now, of course, A Slow Fire Burning, which came out in August this year. Right. So that's Paula Hawkins. Okay, so this is a fairly pacey, wouldn't you say, Jane? There there are parts that were kind of slow moving, but fairly pacey. Now, would you call this character or plot driven? Hit me with the questions immediately. I'm not used to this. Uh, Well, it's a bit of both. It it is a bit of both. I'm glad you said that because I felt that too. That's the correct answer. (laughs) I don't know. Other people (laughs) said character driven. I would say, yeah, it's a bit of both. Yeah. Um, It's a twisty, turny sort of story that jumps around a bit in time. And it also has a book within a book. Yeah. So we thought that could be quite confusing. And so we thought we'd approach this a bit differently this time and discuss this by chatting about each of the main characters. So I'll give you an overview of seven characters. The first is Daniel, who we find out at the beginning of the book has been murdered in a houseboat that he was living in that was docked in the marina. Then we have Angela, who is Daniel's mother. She's an alcoholic, and she was found dead a few weeks before Daniel. Then we have Carla, who's Angela's sister and Daniel's aunt. Then we have Theo, who is Carla's husband and a writer. Miriam also lives on a houseboat that is docked near Daniel's boat, and she has a bit of a beef with Theo that we'll get to. Laura is a 20-something troubled young woman who had a one-night stand with Daniel around the time he was murdered. And then we have Irene, who is a woman in her 80s, who is Angela's neighbor and friend and also a friend of Laura. So those are generally the characters that we're dealing with. And the central driver to the plot, would you agree, Jane, is who killed Daniel? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the premise of the whole thing is finding out who the killer is. This is set in London as well. So when we say houseboat, it's not like the River Murray houseboat. (laughs) It's like those cute little barges that 
going canals. And it also has a map. You know, we're fans of yes, a map at the beginning of a book. About the map. Oh, did you I forget? Forgot. Oh, yes. There's a map at the beginning of the book to kind of set this, Can help you set the scene. I quickly say something about the map? Please. I feel like this led me to believe it was going to be slightly different. In what way? You know, a map like this, and it's very cute. It's kind of like the one that was in After Story yeah. as well. It's lovely and really cute, and there's little baby trees, and <laughs> it just makes it seem like a more gentle, soft-boiled crime mm. type of a book. So not as dark, thrillery as... No, I mean, mm. there's a little market stall picture in there. It's really cute. It's lovely. Mm. I can't believe I forgot about it. I completely f- I looked oh, wow. at it and then I did not refer back to it once, oh, the whole book. really? I can referred back to it that? a few times. Yeah, that's unlike you. Oh, now <laughs> I want to stop recording so I can look at it. But that's okay. I'll do that after. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so I thought we could talk about Daniel and Angela first since they're sure. both already dead by the time yes. um, the story begins. And they're the only ones whose POV we don't get, obviously, because yes. they're, well, not obviously, but because they're dead, we don't get their POV ever. Every Everybody else, we get their POV in different chapters, which, you know, yes. I like that. Yeah. So we find out about Daniel and Angela peripherally from other characters. I feel like Daniel's character only sort of emerged later in yes. the book. He was a bit of a blank. Yes, for the he was just a faceless victim, victim. for a good portion of the the book yeah yeah right his father isn't in the picture and Angela finds him very challenging although I feel like it's not really clear why mm. she found him so challenging and then of course his mother as we said is an alcoholic he also had a little cousin Ben who he had a close relationship with and he died in tragic circumstances that Daniel was involved with and that we get into that more later. So he's had a troubled childhood, Daniel. And then Angela lived next door to Irene in a flat that was in a bad condition and also she gets more and more unwell before she dies. Mm. And she's found dead at the bottom of the stairs by Irene. I think that's when she first encountered Laura. If that's you remember, right. Because Laura looked through the little mail slot, yeah, and then was quite frightened by it and took Irene back inside, made her a cup of tea and... Yeah, mm. so Angela's body had been at the bottom of the stairs for quite some time, mm. so she was fairly badly decomposed. It was a gruesome yeah. scene. And it seems like because of her alcoholism, her death doesn't seem like that big of a surprise to mm. anyone. Yeah, and it was n- ruled as an accident, a fall. Mm-hmm. There was no suspicious circumstances. Yeah, Carla is her grieving sister, and now so she's been grieving her sister, and now she's grieving her nephew's death as well. And she was married to Theo, but at this point in the story, they're living apart, but they still hook up, and they mm-hmm. seem to have quite an affection for each other. And so what we learn is that they did have a really solid relationship to begin with, but then they have their little three-year-old boy who they go on... Carla's business trip and Theo decides to go with her and they leave Ben with Angela and there is a tragic accident and he falls from a broken balcony to his death Mm -hmm. and Carla's husband Theo just cannot forgive Angela so Carla continues to see her sister and her nephew but in private so that Theo doesn't know Mm. and even you know she was seeing her sister still but it was still a tumultuous tense relationship because there was still that hurt and blame you know I think the death of Ben is also quite central to the plot as well I would agree with that yeah, like yeah it's both a real, of those it's a things real significant plot point that a whole heap of things splinter off of yeah these are people who all have hurts and trauma mm. that they're grappling with and I would yeah. say that's a central theme to the book that we'll probably come back to. Mm. So Theo is her husband and he's an author. He has early literary success, but then since the death of Ben, his son, he hasn't been able to uh, claim that success again until he eventually has success with a book called The One Who Got Away. And this book is the book within the book that we get snippets of throughout Mm. the story. And those snippets are done in italics Mm. throughout. Then Miriam is a sort of stereotypical older single woman, busybody, knows everything that's going on. She's always looking out her window and kind of spying on everyone and what's going on around. Nosy Parker. Yeah. 
And she's the one who finds Daniel's murdered body. And I mentioned that she has a beef with Theo. So this is it. She was working in a bookstore in the past. And one day Theo comes in and they strike up this sort of acquaintance. And he mentions that in order to try and get out of this sort of slump he's in, he's going to try writing crime, which is what Jane mm. said is similar to Paula Hawkins' story, which, yeah, I didn't realize a that complete, until you said that. Yeah, a complete reverse of... What she had yeah. been writing. Yep. And same with Theo. This is yes. a, a departure from his usual yes. writing. And so he's going to try crime writing as a way of breaking out of this rut. And so Miriam decides to trust him enough with this manuscript that she's been working on that's basically her life story and this trauma that happened to her when she was a teenager, which is that she was with her friend who is more adventurous and more attractive and they go out one night and a guy approaches her friend and the friend snubs the guy. But then later on they're hitchhiking and they end up being picked up by that same Mm. guy. And Miriam is skeptical and she doesn't want to go with him, but her friend Lorraine keeps coaxing her and eventually he ends up abducting the both of them, sexually assaulting and murdering her friend, and Miriam escapes through a window. So that's the gist of Miriam's manuscript. And then after she gives him that manuscript, lo and behold, Leo publishes this book that is extremely similar. Mm, yeah. And when Miriam tries to relay this or approach the publisher about this, the publisher sends her back this very sternly worded letter denying this accusation mm-hmm. of plagiarism that Miriam, you know, she's got this letter and it's obvious that she's like poured over it over and over and she's simultaneously angered and humiliated mm. by this letter. She's slightly obsessive, Miriam, in a way. Yeah. Mary is a strange character that's well aware of the fact that she makes people uncomfortable And she's got some habits and strange things that she does that really uh, embed her strangeness. She's a weird character, isn't she? Yeah, she is. uh, And it's a lot to do with this incident. Trauma and being powerless and being sidelined by society because of how she looks and her age and all of those sorts of things. She's an interesting character. Yeah, Laura calls her the Hobbit. Yeah. Based on her looks. Yeah. So, yeah. And she wants revenge Mm. on Theo. And then Irene. So Irene is Angela's neighbor in her 80s, as we mentioned, and she was quite close with Angela. So she's uh, affected by finding out that her friend um, died. And she's also still grieving her husband, who died quite some time ago, but whom she still misses dearly to the point of occasionally not looking after herself so that she'll lose touch with reality and then she kind of finds comfort in finding herself in this fog where she thinks he's just gone to the shops. Yeah, that he's going to come home any minute. Yeah. yeah that was yeah. quite sad, wasn't mm. it? Yeah. She sometimes hears Carla next door in Angela's place as Carla sorts out her sister's things. And another plot point with Irene is that sometime before Angela died, she saw Theo and his dog with Angela. Mm. And so she's wondering about the significance of that. Yeah. And then finally, there's Laura. And I've sort of left the best for last because I feel like we get the most from Laura. She feels like the most fleshed out character. And I read an article where Paula Hawkins mentions that part of how she comes up with her novels is she starts with a character and lives with them for a while. And that's how she created Rachel from The Girl on the Train. And with this book, she started with Laura. And that makes sense to me because, as I say, yeah, Laura feels the most real. She's the most rounded out of the characters. She's in her 20s and she's already had a very difficult life. She had an accident when she was a young girl where she's hit by a car and that leaves her with physical disabilities. She's got a limp, but as well and possibly more damaging are the mental and emotional disabilities from this acquired brain injury that in particular leaves her with the inability to regulate her feelings or contain these emotional outbursts. Mm -hmm. So don't you find, Jane, like especially in working um, in customer service, we encounter people that perhaps have had these sorts of issues and even though I can imagine that Laura would be a very difficult person to have in your real life to have her 
portrayed or her backstory mm. given in this way just elicits so much sympathy. Absolutely. I mean, everyone's got a backstory, don't they? That's right. And, you know, it's very rare for someone to behave badly for literally no reason. There's yep. often some sort of underlying something. And yes, you're right. We see a lot of different people in the library. Mm. And there would, I know definitely there are people with these sorts of issues that we see. Yeah, and I feel and it like... Is, it is difficult, but, you know, we go to them with empathy. I feel like this is a good reminder yeah. of that. So not only does she have this tragic accident that's left her with these impairments, but she also has parents that are both pretty deplorable, Yeah, wouldn't you say? Yeah. So her mother left after the accident. So she's grown up with her dad and her dad's new wife, her stepmother, and... Her stepmother hates her pretty Mm. much and is emotionally and verbally abusive to her. And her father is really weak and doesn't stand up to the stepmother at all and isn't a parent for Laura. And then what she finds out is that the car that hit her was actually driven by her mother's lover who was speeding away so as not to be discovered when he hit Laura with his car. Yeah. And when her mother runs off, that's who she runs off with, the man who hit her with his car. Yeah. So, yeah, neither of her parents are there it's for her at all. a lot of bad parenting in this book. True. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of deplorable parents in this book. Uh, when you go through it like that, it sounds so complicated. And that's only really touching the surface. There's so many layers of story and backstory to all of these characters and how they all interweave with each other and how everyone ends up encountering each other at some point throughout the book. And it makes it sound really complicated, but it actually didn't feel like that to read it. It didn't feel as tricky Uh, when you pull it apart like that. Yeah, in reading the reviews on Goodreads, Mm. people found initially that they were confused by the characters. I'm with you. I didn't really find that. Mm. But yes, it did take a few chapters to remember. Mm. Like when it started with Irene's chapters, like, oh, who's Irene again? Oh, that's right. And then on you go. But once you got the swing of it, I do think that particularly the end of the book, you jump between past and present tense quite a bit. And I found that trickier sometimes than the number of characters. There's one thing in particular that I found confusing. I was going to mention it later, but maybe I'll just mention it here. The book within the book, the one who got away, I found myself confused between what was Theo's book and what actually happened Mm. to Miriam. And maybe that's the point. Maybe, because Miriam Mm. mentions part of what angers her is not only that Theo stole her story, but also that he took liberties with it. And she's grappling with the guilt of having left her friend behind to try and save herself and try and get help for her friend, which ultimately she's not able to do. I think in the book she kills him. Remember with the rock? He catches up with her in the paddock and then she kills him with the rock. Yes, So she gets her revenge, which didn't happen in real life. Right. After the police not only learn that Laura spent the night with Daniel, but they also find the knife that killed him in her apartment. Mm -hmm. They arrest her. And so, yeah, this book is so difficult. Mm. I found it really difficult to try and figure out how we were going to talk about this because it gets really messy, I feel like, at this point. Yes, yes. Were you trying to guess who the murderer was? No. Me neither. Why do you think that (laughs) is? I wrote that in here and we've spoken about it before. I generally don't try to guess. I just kind of go along with it and let it reveal itself to me. But as you're reading, you know that the whole point of the book is to find out who killed Daniel. Right. So I'd be lying if I said I wasn't sort of pegging it on different characters throughout the book but I was just letting it happen right the second half of this book I feel like gets more pacey as these plot Mm -hmm. twists abound and plot points are revealed and when the police arrest Laura Theo is very relieved yes and then the police end up questioning Theo because they find out that the knife that is in Laura's possession actually came from Theo's house and in Theo's POV at this point he thinks oh okay that's it I'll confess now and it'll all be over and then 
in Irene's point of view, she reveals that, in fact, Carla is the one who killed Daniel because she sees Daniel's drawing, which depicts Daniel luring her son, Ben, to the balcony and ultimately to his death. Yes. And Theo is covering for Carla. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Because all along they have blamed Angela. So Carla's filled with remorse for not forgiving her sister, not believing her sister that Daniel's bad news basically. Because all through the book Angela talks about what a bad seed Daniel is and how he's damaged and she can't cope with him and she can't manage and she even tells him I wish he'd never been born and things like this. Yeah, she's writing to his father to try Mm. and get some help. I can't deal with him. too much, yeah. Mm. And so Carla has always felt sorry for Daniel and built this potentially strange relationship with him that meant that he was probably more attached to her than was appropriate. Yes, it was sort of alluded to that his love for his aunt was inappropriate. And at yes. one point he sketches her, they don't explicitly say she's naked, but mm. she's in bed. Yeah. And he sketches her. And then once Carla sees the sketchbook and decides that this is how it happened, she's, you know, very upset with herself, I guess, for not forgiving Angela, for having Angela waste away into alcoholism and trauma when it wasn't her fault. Right. But there's a question mark about that. Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, this, I mean, this is one of those great readers group books that you finish the book and you have some resolution to a few plot points, but there's still a few questions really that remain. Mm. Did Daniel kill Ben? Did he actually do that? Or was that a part of his imagination in this, you know, sketchbook? Yeah, that was a big one for me. The fact that she decided that he was guilty of murdering her son Mm. just based on what he sketched in his book. Yeah, and didn't... She went to ask him, but she ended up just killing him. The other question is, did Daniel and Carla have a relationship? I don't think so. No. But, you know, that's a bit of a question. And did someone push Angela down the stairs? Yeah, I had that too. Mm. At some point it was sounding like, you know, maybe Theo did. Yeah. And then there's a point, there's a scene in the book where Daniel scuffs up the carpet at the top of the stairs as well with his foot. I don't know if you remember that bit, but he scuffs it up to maybe make it like a tripping hazard, Mm. perhaps. I didn't catch that one. Yeah, so... Did he push her down? Did he deliberately manufacture a situation where she would fall, knowing that she would be drunk, and fall down the stairs? Because later on, I feel like he does express some guilt over the fact that she had been lying on the ground undiscovered for quite some time. But perhaps that was fake. So there are themes in this book, as we mentioned, of trauma. Mm -hmm. And the back of the book, I just want to read from the back of the book this little tiny bit. It says... Those people who think they have all the power, who think that we have none, we could prove them wrong. We could show them that we could be powerful too. So from that, it would seem that power is also a theme of this book. But what do you think about that? I wrote that down as well. (laughs) How bad is this? I didn't even read the back of the book. I forgot (laughs) about the map and I didn't read the back of the book. So that's quite funny that (laughs) that's what it says on the back. Yes, there's definitely a theme of power imbalance in Mm. this book and also some probably sub- themes of the privilege of being able-bodied, of conforming to beauty standards as well. And also another theme I thought was threaded through was society's distaste of ageing women. Oh, true. I felt that very acutely, particularly with Irene and how she interacts with Theo and Carla in particular. There's this, yeah, this general distaste of people who don't look beautiful, who aren't able-bodied, who are old and past their due date. I definitely thought that was threaded through there. And I I found that thematically interesting. Mm. What do you think? Yeah, I I found it was less about power. I felt felt that was interesting that she used that for the back of the Mm. book because I feel like that was sort of a lesser theme than the theme of trauma, these traumatised... flawed people that are all grappling and 
not dealing with their trauma and therefore acting mm. out in these yeah. negative ways. There's a lot of judgment on people who are victims of abuse or victims of accidents, you know, and we all know that society judges women in particular so harshly when they are the victims of maybe sexual violence or domestic violence or all those sorts of interactions. I thought that was definitely a strong theme as well. But at the end of the book, it's not really the powerless that are the ones that didn't. That's right. They talk about Carla being a more powerful yes, woman. She's put together, right. you know, she's kind of juxtaposes Angela, who's the yes. drunk and the... The waif-like yep. figure. Yeah. yeah. And, and in the Miriam's plotting to sort of peg it on Carla anyway. Right. You know, she's planting evidence. She's giving false information to the police because of the power imbalance between what she perceives her power and Carla's power. And so she's, pl- ironically, I guess, plotting to frame her, I guess, for this murder when in actual fact she actually did commit the murder right. anyway. She didn't need to. <laughs> she didn't need to. <laughs> it just probably inhibited the process. <laughs> I, I will say I didn't feel the same level of tension within this book as I did something like Girl on the Train or Gone Girl or The Push, which, you know, The Push has got some similar themes in it as well with that sort of demonising a child Mm. who might have killed another child and the pressures of motherhood and all of those sorts of things. Oh, that's true. I didn't pick up on that, but you're right. I didn't feel the same sense of just tension, I guess. Yeah, I would say I wasn't as invested. Things I liked were the writing, solid Mm -hmm. writing. And as I've mentioned a million times, I like a book that's told from different points of view in different chapters. I really enjoyed what she did with Laura's character, as I mm-hmm. mentioned. I feel like in life we see people like Laura and dismiss them as damaged, crazy, without thinking about how they got that way. And so I like how she explored her past, um, yeah. as we talked about. I was really intrigued by the subplot of Theo stealing Miriam's manuscript. Mm. And I would have been happy to have more of that. And I feel like that was really the powerful against the powerless. What do you think about the epilogue where, I can see on your face, you know (laughs) what I'm going to say, how there's letters being written to Theo throughout the book asking him, how did you come up with your story for this book and how did you develop the characters and like really quite detailed things. And the letters get more and more insistent and aggressive because Thea's not responding at this point and then one letter comes and it says how did, I think I can't remember what the song was but how did you know about the song mm. and so he's assuming that Miriam's writing these letters to him under a different name and so he confronts her and says leave me alone we've dealt with this what do you want do you want money I'll give you money let's just finish this and Miriam admits well this isn't me I didn't write this and so she reads the letter and the line about the song and realised now that one other person that would know what song was playing in the car when her and her friend Lorraine were abducted that day and it's obviously the man who abducted them, Jeremy. Who they thought was dead. Who they thought was dead. The police thought he threw himself off a cliff. They found a severed foot and so declared him dead. And so this little sub plot which really isn't fleshed out that much Theo arranges to meet this Jeremy and then he's killed right and we're to I assume, assume yeah that Miriam I mean they Theo and Miriam kind of reach this agreement where Theo will sort of draw this Jeremy in and then Miriam will kill him and in so doing also acknowledges the fact that he stole her story that's right yeah it's funny to hear you describe Mm. how that all played out I like that yeah but I feel like it was tacked on yes yes and and like I say I like the whole story about Theo stealing Miriam's Mm. book I would have wanted more of that yeah but this the way they ended that storyline just felt a bit like an afterthought yeah Mm. It's literally in the epilogue. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) One of the things I almost liked was the book within a book. Yes. I wanted to like that. I liked the idea of it. I thought that it was clever and I liked how Theo's book helps to reveal what 
happened. But in the end, like I said, I was confused by it. It's almost like she needed to lean into that bit a little bit more. Yeah. But in doing so, something else would need to probably go from the storyline. Yeah. You couldn't have everything. Yeah, maybe there was just too much. Because there is a lot happening. So yeah, one of the things I didn't like was the number of little items that certain characters took from other characters. Mm. Like at various points, Miriam, Laura and Irene had all taken slash stolen things and were holding on to little various items of other people. And I yes. found that like unrealistic and too many. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> too many pieces of evidence. Too many a little key and a knife and a... Yes. Bit yes. of jewellery and this and that. Yeah, I didn't even tweak that the knife and their scarf were in the bag that Laura stole until they like said it was in the bag. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't even really realise that. And I feel like that should have been a bigger aha than it w- actually yeah. was. Yeah, I do feel like it was a slightly anticlimactic at the end. Mm. Uh, yeah. I didn't feel that sense of, <gasps> mm. oh. I think the reason for that is that there was just too so much. much. There was so much going on and it all comes to the crux at the end, like quarter of the book. Mm. Which, yeah, is how these novels go. But I feel like if she had focused on the one story or the other, then Mm. there would have been more of an impact when the killer was revealed. revealed. I think there's also some themes of sort of villainizing mothers as well in this book, which has some links to, again, to the push and maybe something like we need to talk about, Kevin, where Mm. these, these mothers, not mothers in the way society expects a woman to be, a nurturing, caring, loving mother and I think people like that theme which is why it's reoccurring in lots of books the evil child and the villainous mother yeah are a a tropey sort of themes in lots of books and movies yeah I guess it's so it flies in the face of what society thinks a mother should be is and I guess that's why it keeps appearing yeah yeah just one other thing I want to mention I didn't like Mm. and an extra bit that (laughs) felt like it didn't need to be in there do you know what I'm gonna say no Theo's dog. Oh, yes. So Theo mentions sort of early on that his dog is missing. Yes. Which, you know. I forgot about uh, that. Uh, yeah, yeah, dogs in books. Uh, I know, just always. put me on edge. Yeah. They're always going to die. Oh, God. And then <laughs> you find out that Miriam's mm. got the dog's tag. Yes. And then at the end, she says that she just takes a knife and slices the dog's throat. I, I mean, what? did that bring to the plot nothing was it a way to highlight miriam's character was it a way to say she is capable of something like this is was it a red herring to get the reader to think oh well she if you could kill an innocent dog in your sink then she could stab her neighbor to death and slit the neighbor's throat Um, well okay you know how i feel about animals dying in books awful oh Yeah, I just hate it. Yeah. (laughs) I hate that part. Yeah. I'm trying to remember at what point you find out that Miriam killed the dog in terms of where you were and knowing who killed Daniel. It never occurred to me that Miriam was the one to have killed Daniel. No, neither. No. No. So, I don't know. I didn't like that bit. No, yuck. (laughs) (laughs) So, what did we think? I enjoyed it mostly. I mean, it's hard with a book like this where it's an author whose previous book we've both loved. Yeah. And we talked about that. Mm. So you go in with big expectations, although my expectations were tempered by Into the Water, which, as Jane mentioned at the beginning, Mm. didn't receive great reviews. I read it and also didn't like it, found there were way too many characters. This one I find fits somewhere in between those two. Okay. Yeah, there were still a lot of characters and a lot of plot that was going on that I felt like could have used a bit more focus. So it didn't reach the heights of Girl on the Train, but it was better than Into the Water. Like I said before, this is a good readers group book. There's lots to discuss. Mm. There's some unanswered questions, which are good discussion points. Mm, Lots to unpack. It's a really quick, pacey read, which has its place. And I enjoy that. This is not going to be my top list of the year Mm. but it was yeah it was fun yeah agree (laughs) 
<laughs> one little note that I thought was interesting, the audiobook is read by Rosamund Pike, who played the main character in Gone Girl. So from what I've read, she does a really good job, and I can imagine that. That'd be great. Mm. I wonder how they'll do it, whether she just reads it or... I always like it when it's an audio book, and if it is different characters, I like it when it's a different voice. Voice, if not they just can someone, do it. Well, not someone even faking a different voice, but oh. actual different people. Oh, I don't think so. I think she reads the just whole reads thing. The whole thing. Yeah, interesting. Hmm. Shall we talk about what else we've read this let's, month? Let's do that. I've only read one other thing. I've tried to read multiple things, but I've only gotten through. One other thing. How did you go? Pretty much the same. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I read One Italian Summer by Pip Williams. Oh, yay! <laughs> <laughs> and it was lovely. Yeah. It was a really lovely book. So Pip is the author of the hugely, incredibly popular and very well-received uh, Dictionary of Lost Words, which has won loads of awards. I think was it the ABA Winner last year. So many awards, it's hard so, to remember them yeah. all. If you see the latest editions of, of Dictionary of Lost Words, it's so covered in those little gold um, <laughs> medallion things. Now you can barely see the cover. And interestingly, it's one of our trending titles books, and I think it won the award for staying on the t- trending titles catalogue the longest. Yes. It's just people keep wanting to read it. Yeah, it walks off the shelf. Yep. Pip is an Adelaide author. She lives in the Adelaide Hills after moving from, I want to say Sydney. Yeah. I think it was Sydney. Yep. A number of years ago. So this book was written before the Dictionary of Lost Words in 2017. Uh, Pip and her husband, Shannon, they live in the hills. They move there deliberately to sort of slow down their lives. They want to live the good life. They want a slower pace. They want sustainable living. They want to be a bit more self-sufficient off of their property, growing their own food, and then eventually drawing an income from their land and whatever they produce. So the day-to-day grind of working the offices and commuting into the city was starting to wear thin. So they pack up their lives, take their kids out of school and they travel to Italy to become woofers for the summer. (laughs) And woofers, and I'm hoping I get this right because, you know, why wouldn't I write this down in my notes? But I didn't. (laughs) It stands for Willing Workers of Organic Farms. Mm. I looked it up afterwards. There's a website you can register yourself and you can go and be a worker on an organic farm and you get your board and food and accommodation for free essentially. So you're working but you're getting kind of an experience as Mm -hmm. well. They work across uh, several different organic farms in Italy. For the summer they get their hands dirty to see if this is kind of a good fit for them. It's a bit of a try before you buy, if you will, Mm. about whether they want to really go for it when they get back home really lovely read not too much of a sappy finding yourself memoir Mm. which is a bit more like reminds me Uh, eat pray love yes (laughs) (laughs) it's not down that avenue it's a bit more down to earth than that Well, certainly not because eat pray love she's all on her own and just doing whatever she wants pip and shannon have two boys and they're working yeah Mm. yes there's much more down to earth than that it's a really delightful read Italy sounds like a dream it's highlighted how long it's been since we've been mm. able to travel and indeed oh, how yes. long till we can travel internationally again so for those of us missing travel this is a nice easy gentle read beautiful yeah. and can you imagine I think your kids are probably about the ages yes. that her kids work can yes. you imagine plucking them out of school and going to a foreign country and wolfing yes yeah. I mean you know, I like to think of myself as being as adventurous as this, and I'm absolutely not. There's <laughs> no way I could cope with that amount of change. <laughs> and the kids, I'd the be, kids. I'm too stressy. I'm too stressy. Paula. I feel like it's the kids. If you were, it was just you and yeah. Stephen, you could probably do it, yes. right? But when you think about the kids know, and having they, them out of school, the kids are in on the farm, and they're just sort of left to their own devices, not in a neglectful way, no. but in a all right, we're going to go down and build this fence for the chickens and the kids are like off playing wherever on a farm for five hours it's just a whole different lifestyle than what us helicopter urban (laughs) parents are used to what an amazing experience (laughs) it was really nice it's had like middling sort of reviews this book right but you can see the quality of her writing and you know she paints a beautiful picture of italy Mm. yeah lovely i read the last story of mina lee by nancy juyun kim 
So this is a story that flips back and forth in time between the 80s when Mina is a young woman, an immigrant just arriving to L.A. from Korea after her husband and young daughter have been killed. And her other daughter, Margot, in present day, who finds her mother's body dead in her mother's apartment in Koreatown. So in a way, it's a murder mystery, but it doesn't really read that way at all. It's a very slowly progressing character-driven novel. It touches a lot on very powerful themes like the experiences of immigrants in American society and those of their children whose lives are so different from their parents because they've grown up in America, so they're fluent in English and they have often more educational opportunities and how that affects the parent-child relationship relationship to just touch on one of the themes. This book, it took me a long time to get through. I was listening to the audiobook and it is quite slow. And so I found myself not in a big hurry to get back to it. So I was really hindered by that. And also the audiobook version I, I, there's no kind way to say that it was just really bad. Oh. And I'm not the only one who thought that when I looked at the Goodreads comments, somebody said it's like the person just learned how to read, which is so, oh. seems so mean, but it was really bad. <laughs> it was so bad. So it's too bad because I probably should have just read the book form of this book because it think suffered you from enjoyed that. It? Yeah, I, certainly more than I did. Mm. How disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've t- we talk about it almost every month we about do. how impacting the narrator is on audiobooks. Yeah, can mm. make it or break it. Yeah. Do you want to hear some literary news? Yes, please. So I thought we could talk about the Women's Prize for Fiction. Mm-hmm. To give people a bit of background in case you don't know what the Women's Prize for Fiction is, there are some people in the industry in 1991 who noted that there were no women nominated for the Booker Prize. So the Women's Prize for Fiction is an answer to that. It's an annual international literary award that they say is quote, shining a spotlight on outstanding and ambitious fiction by women from anywhere in the world, regardless of their age, race, nationality, or background. So the 2021 prize went to Susanna Clark for Paranisi. This book has been described as strange and beautiful. It's a slim novel, so it's not like a huge undertaking to read it. I'll just read you a little quote about about Paranisi. Paranisi's house is no ordinary building. Its rooms are infinite, its corridors endless, its walls are lined with thousands upon thousands of statues, each one different from all the others. Within the labyrinth of halls, an ocean is imprisoned, waves thunder up staircases, rooms are flooded in an instant. But Paranisi is not afraid. He understands the tides as he understands the pattern of the labyrinth itself. He lives to explore the house. So... (laughs) to be perfectly honest this has everything about it that puts me off (laughs) it's fantasy that blurb i just read Mm. the cover that depicts a minotaur playing a lute yes so yeah it's been a it's i see it everywhere though Mm. people who love it love it they love it and they rave yeah so you got to be into that, though, I think. Yeah, and if you are, you know, pick it up because mm. the readers of this type of fiction just rave about yeah. it. Gillian Flynn, who is the author of Gone Girl, mm-hmm. is going to have her own book imprint. Called, oh. Yeah, called Gillian Flynn Books. Wow. And she says it will focus on propulsive, culturally incisive, and dynamic work from writers working across genres. Is that literally her own publishing house or is she an imprint of a bigger house yeah it's an imprint of a new house called zando um which the the person who started that came from a publisher called crown so the person who started this publishing house has worked with jillian flynn and now she's going to have her own imprint which i thought was kind of interesting exciting yeah great look out for that Shall I talk about what's coming out this month? Please. There's quite a lot and we're getting to that point of the year where everyone's bringing books out because they want the Christmas dollars. Mm. So lots of memoirs are coming out, lots of big um, titles still to be released this year. So this month has got lots coming out and we'll see even more probably in November, which is very exciting. So a couple that I've picked out, Stanley Tucci, do you know him? Yes. He's been in movies forever and everybody loves him from Devil Wears Prada 
and assorted other movies. But he made a bit of a splash on social media last year when everyone was in lockdown and he was doing these little videos on Instagram about him making his evening cocktail. He's got this little cocktail um, space in his house and it was just him doing like a recipe he's like oh and you muddle this in with this and then you pour this and shake and whatever oh I miss that and people were going crazy for it right. they loved it and I don't know if you've heard the term zaddy <laughs> <laughs> I have not have and I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to guess what combination of words that is so there's a few distinguished older men who get this label of being a zaddy hot daddy <laughs> Why is it Zed? I don't know. Why is it Zed? Is it because it appeals to Gen Z? I don't know. (laughs) But they're like, essentially, they're older men who go about their lives and, you know, know what they're doing and they've got it all sorted and they're good dads and they can cook things and they can make things (laughs) and they're, you know, the full package kind of a guy. Anyway, Stanley Tucci has been labelled as a zaddy. Okay. (laughs) Learn something today. Google it later. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, he has a book coming out called Taste My Life Through Food. So this is out in October. This is an Alan and Unwood book. It's a uh, memoir about his life in and outside of the kitchen. He grew up in an Italian-American family and spent lots of time cooking and eating with his family. So this is a taste is an intimate reflection of the intersection of food and life filled with anecdotes about growing up in Westchester, New York. Another memoir coming out. This is the first full-length autobiography from Billy Connolly called Windswept and Interesting. Now, you were growing up in Canada. Was Billy Connolly a big deal in Canada in the sort of 90s? I feel like I am not a good person to ask because my father is Scottish. So Um, Billy Connolly was big in our house because of that. He was huge here as well. I remember he did a stand-up in the city I lived in and it was very well attended. So, yeah, I guess he was. Yeah. Maybe it's a Commonwealth thing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So he's got a book coming out. This is an Achette book. This is – and a couple of things I didn't know about him. So he was born in 1942 and he was orphaned at the age of four. Oh, no, I didn't know that either. And he was a survivor of appalling abuse at the hands of his family. As he grew up, he became a welder in shipyards and then he was a folk musician and then, of course, he – forayed into telling stories and jokes and then the rest is history so this um will be very popular so that's billy Connolly, windswept and interesting now i'm very excited about this one david sedaris oh jane's <laughs> favorite has a, another book coming out called a carnival of snackery so this is part two of his diary series so in 2018 he wrote theft and findings he's kept a diary a daily diary for his whole life. So the first book um, was 1977 to 2002 and this is 2003 to 2020. And I'll just read this because this is so exactly why I like his books. Mm -hmm. For 40 years, David Sedaris has kept a diary in which he records everything that captures his attention. Overheard comments, salacious gossip, soap opera plot twists, secrets confided by total strangers... These observations are the source code for his finest work and through them he has honed his cunning, surprising sentences. So, have you read David Sedaris? I still haven't. I keep meaning to. The stories he weaves out of a little overheard conversation or a strange encounter are just, they seem mundane but they're hilarious and I'm really looking forward to that. So that's out this month. Another memoir... I love a memoir. (laughs) (laughs) Keep going. I'm loving it. (laughs) This one's by Jamie Foxx, the actor. Ah. He's got a book coming out called Act Like You've Got Some Sense. I was a bit surprised to read about what this is going to be about. The title is inspired by his um, beloved and fierce grandmother. And in the book, he talks about his rocky parenting journey through tough love and old school values he learned growing up in the small town called Terrell, Terrell in Texas. Mm. And his early days trying to make it in Hollywood. And it says here, you'd think being an A-lister would ease his dad duty struggles. But if anything, it's made things more complicated. He's got a teenage daughter who just wants to blend in with her friends and is not excited to see her dad's flashy new convertible at the front of the carpool line. <laughs> so it sounds like it's, it says here, it's hilarious, it's poignant and brutally honest. So that might actually be really good. Yeah, no, that sounds good. Did you read The Nowhere Child? 
a couple of years ago. Oh, is that Christian out? Christian White. White? Yeah. Yes, I did. What did you think? I didn't like it. Okay. <laughs> well, but other, other people did. Lots of people did like yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> he has a new book coming out called The Wild Place, and this is by a firm. So he wrote The Nowhere Child and Wife and the Widow. Did you read that as well? No, I no, didn't. I didn't read either of them, but mm. I saw The Nowhere Child everywhere mm-hmm. when it came out. That's right. Now this, tell me what this reminds you a little bit of. Okay. In the summer of 1989, a local teen goes missing from the idyllic Australian suburb of Camp Hill. As rumours of satanic rituals swirl, school teacher Tom Witter becomes convinced he holds the key to the disappearance. When the police won't listen, he takes matters into his own hands with the help of missing girl's father and local neighbourhood watch group. Yes. It definitely reminds me of something. But My best friend's exorcism. Of course. <laughs> of course, yeah. So, yeah, another book with themes of the satanic panic and the 80s and teenage girls going missing and probably murdered. So it's a bit of a thing at the moment, Yeah, clearly. Now, another book I loved in the early 2000s was The Corrections by Jonathan Franzen. Oh, I'm a fan of Jonathan Franzen. He's got a new book coming out called Crossroads and it sounds very much down his alley of writing. It's another sort of multi-character, family-driven, character-driven book. It's set in 1971 and I'll just read this little paragraph. December 23rd, 1971, and heavy weather is forecast for Chicago. Russ Hildebrand, the associate pastor of a liberal suburban church, is on the brink of breaking free of a marriage he finds joyless, unless his wife Marion, who has her own secret, beats him to it. Their eldest child, Clem, is coming home from college on fire with moral absolution, having taken an action that will shatter his father. Clem's sister, Becky, long the social queen of her high school class, has sharply veered into the counterculture, while their brilliant younger brother, Perry, who's been selling drugs to seventh graders, has resolved to be a better person. Each of the Hildebrands seeks a freedom that each of the others threatens to complicate. So mm. that sounds quite interesting. I didn't read The Corrections, but I read and loved Freedom, and it's got some similar vibe Yeah, to The freedom. Corrections was like this is okay. about one family. And yeah. They're intersecting storylines. So mm. his books are often just enormous. Yes. And I presume this will also be enormous. <laughs> Probably. Probably. <laughs> so there's some really exciting books coming out um, this month. So we'd love, if you read any of them, we'd love to hear what you think. And they'll all be in the catalogue. Shall we talk about our oh, yes. book for I next forgot. month? How could you forget? <laughs> <laughs> So many great books coming out right now, as Jane said, and this one we have been excited to read. Our book for next month is Apples Never Fall by Leanne Moriarty. Hooray. I'll read the blurb, shall I? Yes. From the outside, the Delaney's appear to be an enviable, contented family. Even after all these years, former tennis coaches Joy and Stan are still winning tournaments and now they've sold the family business, they have all the time in the world to learn how to relax. Their four adult children are busy living their own lives and while it could be argued they never quite achieved their destinies, no one ever says that out loud. But now Joy Delaney has disappeared and her children are re-examining their parents' marriage and their family history with fresh, frightened eyes. Is her disappearance related to their mysterious house guests from last year? Or were things never as rosy as they seemed in the Delaney house? So this is a trending title, so you could grab it from the Marriott Cultural Centre. And it's also on Libby. Yes. So have a look there too. Is it audio as well or just just regular e-book? ebook. Okay. Yes. Or just go onto our catalog and put a hold. There's loads of copies. And subscribe to the podcast, join our Facebook group, and give us a rating. And we'll see you next month. Bye. Bye. The last story of Mina Lee by Dan- Dancing. I read the last. <laughs> oh. You know it, what it was is I, I, there's a name coming up that I googled how to how to pronounce, pronounce and I saw it coming up and then I just messed up Nancy. <laughs> <laughs>